0: Well, good morning Midland Free. Good morning. Welcome back. We're so glad you're here Um, last week as we experienced a wonderful week celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. uh, One of the things I thought to myself, I'm not sure if you had this feeling uh, as well, but man, wouldn't it be great if we came every week so excited and so enthused to celebrate the resurrection Indeed, that's why we celebrate on Sunday rather than the Sabbath days, because of the resurrection. And yet, things happen, like, for example, the head cold that I have right now. And so, it is difficult to come every week with that much energy. We certainly understand that. Uh, That being the case, I was talking to someone before the service began this morning, and they said, boy, you sound a little bit groggy this morning. And I said, yes, yes, it's true, I have a cold. And uh, they began to relate all the stories of all the other people around the office that are experiencing similar things. One person pneumonia, another person bronchitis, this person this, this person that. And I said, wow, sounds like we need a doctor. I think there must be some sort of staph infection going around. <laughs> yeah, nailed that one. That was awesome. Oh man, it was original too, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so welcome to church. We hope you are well this morning. And we're glad to see the sunshine out today. Take heed and take heart. Uh, those will be the two words that I will try to drive home this morning. Take heed and take heart. I can remember as a young man when I was growing up, In the uh, city of Rochester, Minnesota, my dad was in residency at the time, so he's working a ton of hours, plus we had a family, so he had to, in fact, pick up another nighttime security job in addition to being a medical resident, and so insane schedule, and he was gone a lot, and I can remember my brothers and, and I sitting at the big front picture window Waiting for dad to come home. We were just like, oh, dad's going to come home. Dad's going to come home. You know, because when dad comes home, it's time for fun. It's time to wrestle. It's time to play. It's time to get back rubs. It's time to tickle. It's time to go out in the street and kick the football around or whatever. When dad comes home, it's going to be a good thing. But there are also those mo- those evenings where mom would say, better watch out. Your dad's coming home in a little bit, right? Uh, and what that meant was the buck stops here. You know, you've got away with it for so long, you think you're doing okay, but pretty soon the enforcer comes home and you guys are in trouble. You've pushed mom as far as she can handle. Now it's time for dad to come home and the buck stops here. Well, it's an interesting thing how the same statement can be at this, at this mean two different things. You know, in one sense, it's a tremendous encouragement. Take heart. Dad is coming home. In another sense, it's a big old warning. Take heed. Dad is coming home. Take heart. Your father's coming. Take heed. Dad's coming home. Today, I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is working a very similar um, scenario. He's going to say to the people, hey, these are the last days, the final hours come, and you need to take heed, because your dad's coming home. But at the same time, I want you to take heart, The dad's coming home. So take heed, and take heart, both. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, before I read it, normally at this point, I would jump into the reading, because I'm warmed up and ready to chat, and here we go, but... Today's text is kind of tricky because it's got all this stuff about spiritual baptism and spiritual food and water and rock and clouds. And they were delivered out of and therefore you were a part of. And you start reading this stuff and you're like, what in the world is going on here? And what's happening is the Apostle Paul as an apostle has some special apostolic authority that we ourselves necessarily don't. He's not playing fast and loose with scriptures and trying to make them say whatever he wants. But instead, he's saying, this is how you New Testament believers can apply the historical experiences of the Old Testament saints. And so what he's going to do is sort of allegorize or use an analogy, if you will, to draw some parallels. Can say here's the parallels, okay? So here's your life and here's their life, and this is what you can learn from them, so you don't re- repeat the mistakes of the past, okay? So as you know, you know those who don't remember history are doomed to repeat it, and that's a problem. We want you to remember what's going on here, and so this is how it works. So before I want to, before I even read the text today, what I want to do is quickly and briefly explain the two particular parallels. That the Apostle is making. That way when I read it. It won't be all fuzzy. You know, nonsensical narrative. But you'll say okay that makes sense. This is that and this is that. So I'm going to explain those two parallels. Read the text. And then we'll start to apply them to our lives. Amen. Everybody with me. Alright. Here we go. So the first analogy is this. It is baptism. There's two analogies. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now. Now. We New Testament believers, if you go to church, if you don't, no big deal, just follow along, you'll figure it out. But if if you go to church on a regular basis, you'll understand that these are two things that we try and hope to do pretty often. The more baptisms we have, the better, right? And the Lord's Supper frequently reminds us of Jesus' death, burial, and His resurrection, His sacrifice on our behalf. And so we, as believers in Jesus, do these things... For his honor and his glory to remember his work. And to say that we participate or we accept or believe by faith in this grace imparted unto us. Okay? This is who we are. So, for example, New Testament believers, we take the bread and the wine. or Excuse me, let me go back to first baptism because baptism usually precedes it. We we are baptized. So, we make a profession of faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. It's my Savior for forgiveness of my sins. Okay, about every head bowed, no one looking around. Let's have an altar call. Anyone want to come forward for baptism? Okay, so next week sign up for the class and let's get you baptized. Why? Because here's what happens. We believe that the, the death of Christ is represented in our burial. The resurrection of Christ represented when we come out of the water. And therefore we say we are buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in new life. This is the process we represent spiritually in the physical act of baptism. Now, that's for us, and we, you, even, you may not, but most of us hopefully get some of that. That's what we do. Now, Paul is going to say, in a sense, that's what happened to the Old Testament Israelites when they were delivered out of Egypt. What happened to them is they said there was this Passover, right, where there's a sacrifice, the lamb. And then the blood was put on the doorpost and then the angel passed by. And as a result, God delivers them from slavery and bondage to walk in the newness of life. And they are led out in the wilderness and they are, in a sense, submerged in the cloud. The cloud covers them. And then the cloud guides them and the cloud leads them. And that is symbolic of the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us. And then it leads them down into the Red Sea and up out again. And what is that? The apostles say, well, that in a sense can be their baptism. And so this is is how it works in Exodus chapter 13. It says this, when Pharaoh let the people go... God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So they have been delivered out of slavery and bondage. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night, pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night did not depart from before the people. So metaphorically speaking, what happens is this cloud ends up being their covering going down into the sea. It's kind of like going down in the water, coming out, coming out. And there is their baptism. So what that does essentially is that identifies them as members of the covenant community. That says we are Israelites. We're not Egyptians. We are Israelites. We're not Moabites. We are Israelites. We're not Amorites, you know, Hittites or any of the other ites, right? We are Israelites. We are part of this community that follows Yahweh and worships what we believe to be the universal God whose boundaries know no end. In Egypt, in Sinai, in Canaan, wherever he is God. We're Israelites. We worship one God, Yahweh's his name. So, they are part of this community. Then, as they travel throughout the Sinai Peninsula, God provides for their physical needs with physical provision through bread and through water. Manna and from the sky, and then water from the rock. Later he's going to say this rock is Christ. He's going to sort of make that attempt to show Christ as their provision, and then he switches over to us. And we say, okay, we don't have manna and water, but what provision, in a sense, do we take as New Testament believers? Bread and wine. The body and blood of Jesus. So while they had physical provision, we have spiritual provision, and both of those are symbols of us by faith having believed in God's provision for our lives and appropriated it to say we are now experiencing the grace of God actively at work in us. So we, like them, have identified ourselves publicly as members of the covenant community, and we have said that we affirm this thing we affirm this, God, and we believe that his grace is the provision for everything we need. Amen? Okay, so there's a parallel that he's drawing. He's saying, you and they are a lot alike. Yeah, you're different people, different time periods, different covenants, different administrations of God's grace. But at the same time, lest you think you're way too far removed to get into the trouble therein, look how similar you actually are. So, that being said, let's take a look then at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, take heed and take heart. Take heed and take heart. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now, nevertheless, here's our warning. With most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, here's the parallel Now, these things took place for us as an example, that we may not desire evil as they did. Now, here's some examples of their failures. Ready? Here we go. Verse 7 says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the golden calf incident. Verse 8 says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a result of the worship of Baal. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's the whole complaints against manna incident. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's the rebellion of Korah. Now, here's the bookend, the same verse that you saw just a little bit ago, repeated in a similar way. It says, now these things happen to them as an example. There it is again. Get, get the hint here, folks. This is an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom what? The end of the ages has come. Dad is coming home. You're at that point. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. There's the warning, lest he fall. Take heed, dad is coming home. But here's your encouragement, verse 13. Take heart as well, because no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. For God is faithful. I didn't say you are faithful, I said God was faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Believe in the Holy Spirit. Believe in the prayers of the people. And I believe in the power of the word. As I studied this text this morning, one of the interesting things was, is, you know, I thought, oh, cool. You know, pastors are busy people. We got a lot of stuff going on. We're always looking for ways to save time or take shortcuts. And I thought, oh, good. Four Old Testament illustrations. Surely in my preaching past, I've preached on one of these and I can pull something up, cut and paste it in the sermon. Good to go. Meet with whoever's lined up to meet with me. All right, here we go. But as I looked at it, it was interesting. I looked, oh, golden calf. Hmm. Haven't preached on that one. Weird. Okay, wait. The Baal worship. Nope. Didn't do that one. Korah's rebellion. Oh, no. Didn't do that one. Manna. No, haven't done it. And what in the world? <laughs> Come on, man. I thought I preached through the whole Old Testament at some point, And I did. Like 52 weeks, which ended up being like 60. And I thought, how in the world did I miss those? And I looked at my old list and I saw, well, I, I hit the majors that everyone tries to emphasize. When you go through the Old Testament, you'll do stuff like, basically, you'll do Genesis. And then you'll do Exodus. And you'll do a conquest You'll do the judges, you'll do the kings, you'll do some of the prophets, you'll do the exile, and then you'll do the return. And that's kind of the movement of Old Testament history. And you'll recognize those stories. You know, you do creation. You do the fall. You do the flood. You do the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. That gets you down into Egypt. In Egypt, you do Moses. You come back out again. You you need the Ten Commandments. Everybody does the Ten Commandments. The tabernacle. And then you want to hit the Battle of Jericho. You know, the conquest with Joshua. You want to do King Saul because he's the first king and then he's not that great. So focus on King David and his heirs. You might hit on Bathsheba a little bit, but let's pass by pretty quick. Psalm 51, say a prayer. You're done. Good to go. Okay. (laughs) Then you move on a little bit faster and you hit Elijah and Elijah, man, you should see the miracles that they do power. Those guys are awesome. And then you go from them to Daniel who stands in the lion's den in a fiery furnace. And Esther, what an amazing woman of God. How beautiful she is and the way she stands in such a bad time. Then you go on to Ezra and his reforms and Nehemiah and rebuilding. And all of a sudden you're ready for Jesus to come back. Then what you forget It's all these failures. Failure after failure after failure after failure. And I look at this Old Testament people group and I say, wow, it's kind of amazing, actually. There are quite a few more stories, actually, of failures than success. (laughs) And it's a funny thing because we, as human beings, we like all the positive examples, right? Show me the good stuff. Make me feel good and go away home and happy. But if that's all we ever focus on, we do a tremendous disservice to Scripture because Scripture... Is not a rosy posy, pansy, fairy tale, make believe, made up stories. Instead, what it is, what it is, is not just how things should be, but how things actually are. And that is a very different picture. And that is, of course, the reason for Christ and the need for redemption, is because it's an honest portrayal of humanity and sickness and sin and death and disharmony and disgust at every turn people mess up over and over again in the old testament and today and scripture is totally totally brutally honest with that fact so much so that at times we have a very painful picture but i would say to you hey a better painful picture than a painful reality better learn from somebody else's mistakes than make them myself so Craig Bloomberg, in an NIV application commentary, says it like this. He says, you know, look, one of the most important purposes of all the stories of the Bible is to illustrate the undesirable behavior, the bad stuff, along with the good. This is what you don't want to do, and you should preach on this too, preacher. I know it's not popular, and it may not bring in the feel-good crowds, but come on. This is real life. You've got to address this. So you look at this next chapter and you see, what are the examples that Paul uses? David, the battle of Jericho, you know, conquest, kings, victories. No. He pulls up four examples and they're all negative. Every one of them. Down. For example, verse 7, the worship of the golden calf. Not exactly our highlight. <laughs> what about the sexual infidelity that they worshipped the... God or goddess Baal with. Perhaps their wonderful response to God's provision, no, actually, is complaints and grumbling. Or their acceptance of their punishment and discipline, and they how they got it right after that, no, and stack how they complained more. And God killed them. Over and over again, despite having experienced the guidance by the cloud. The crossing of the Red Sea, the eating of manna and quail, the supernatural provision of water from the rock, experiencing all of God's amazing, incredible goodness and grace, yet here they are, falling down at the feet of a golden calf, worshiping foreign idols, being unfaithful with pagan women, and grumbling about all that God has provided for them. What a mess. What people. Surely we're not as bad as they are. Right? We wouldn't do anything like that. I mean, we who've been delivered not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin. We who have seen a miraculous Passover the death, burial, blood, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been guided not by a cloud, but instead the Holy Spirit. We who have been led down, not into the Red Sea, but the baptismal tanks. We who have been brought out and been provided, not with bread and water, but blood and wine, the supernatural spiritual provision of Jesus. We would never do something like that, would we? We sin with foreign women. Well, do you lust after something you should not have? We would never complain about God's provision in our life and want something more, would we? Would we be dissatisfied? Surely not. Surely we are better than they. Yeah, over and over again, I think the parallels are pretty clear. Infidelity, idolatry, letting things take the place of God and push him out of our lives so that he is no longer a priority. Lusting over things we should not, whether they are women or goods or whatever. Over and over again, we repeat the mistakes of the past. Having trampled on the grace of God. And you know what he did with these people in the Old Testament? He killed them. He killed them. Well, surely he wouldn't do such a thing with us, right? Have you read the next chapter? We're in chapter 10 right now, chapter 11. Have you read what happens when people trample on the grace of God in the Lord's Supper? Do you remember the verse that says some of them have fallen asleep for this? There are some pretty significant parallels here that we really need to pay attention to. God is the same God. Different covenants to be sure, yes, but the same God. And he describes himself as a jealous and righteous God who will share his glory with no other. For I, the Lord, am your God, a jealous God, and you shall worship no other gods before me. And just because you have a, don't have a little thingamadingy on your shelf doesn't mean you're not worshiping another God. You need to stop. Take heed. Take heed. Take heed. When I came in this morning, you know, um, I've been praying for illustrations because I was starting to look at this text and run thin. The Lord provided one sitting right there on the door of our front office. It's a little bell. And the bell says, ring here for service. I thought, boy, a lot of good that would do me this morning, right? 7.30, they've been gone since Thursday. I haven't seen anybody around here. (laughs) But the funny thing is, is sometimes we treat God like that, don't we? We think God is sitting there at the edge of the desk with a bell waiting for us to ring it. Bang, jump up, God, do what I want. You're here to serve me. Give me this, give me that, I'll take this, I'll take that, please. Okay, thanks, Lord. And by the way, I did go to church on Sunday, so surely you owe me it, right? Come on, God, where are you? Step into an office place, does it even work like that? (laughs) Not really. You know, most of the places I've gone to, that bell is somewhat symbolic, (laughs) you know? There's a bell there, but where's the person? Well, right next to the please ring for service, there's another note that says, well, please don't ring it more than once. And then there's probably another note that says, and if you do, then we'll ring your bell. And then there's probably a third note that says, well, why bother? You might as well just sit down, take a seat. We'll be back whenever we get here, right? Well, okay, so I lived in Canada and experienced healthcare for a while, whatever, you know. (laughs) I have pictures that says take a number, you know, three hours waiting for lab work, yeah. Anyways, I'm telling you, the bell. Right? We put it there and we expect results. And God is saying, "Huh, it's the other way around. I ring the bell, you jump. Not that way. I did not create you for me to serve, but I created you to serve me. You understand, this is the way the message says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, we must be on guard. Take heed so that we never get caught up in wanting our own way as they did. Here's the fundamental problem with these folks is we must not turn our religion into a circus. We must not be sexually promiscuous. We must never try to get Christ to serve us instead of us serving him. Reducing God to something that they can use or control. Chapter 10 goes on to say, you can't have it both ways. I think there's a slide of this. Banqueting with the master one day and slumming with demons the next. Besides, the master won't put up with it. He wants us all or nothing. Do you think you can get away with anything less? You think the bell is just for him to serve you? It's the exact opposite way around, folks. Take heed. Take heed. Listen, here's the parallel. Here's the point. Just because you're a member of the covenant community, just like the Old Testament folks, just because you've been baptized, just because you take the Lord's Supper, it is not enough to go to church, take the Lord's Supper, and go home. It's not enough. It falls far short of what God requires. He doesn't want your lip service, your externalities, or your mere performances. He wants your heart. He wants everything about you. He demands and requires your exclusive devotion that nothing else should come before him. In every way, he must be first and foremost in your life. He is your God. And if he is anything less than he is a mere idol or bell that you want to call up at certain times. He wants to be in everything, in every place, in every way. All the time. He cannot be compartmentalized. There is no separation between your your religious life and your outside life, between your church and your politics, your work or anything else. He is there. It is all in or nothing. He doesn't want half time. He wants it all. He is a jealous God who requires everything from you. Take heed. Take heed. Your Father is coming back. The last days but take heart take heart as well because look second 2 timothy two thirteen says even if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself he didn't bail out on the patriarchs did he you think jacob was a good guy and he was a shyster <laughs> he was pulling stuff at every turn yet God kept his promises. Even though they were completely faithless. Abraham lies, Isaac lies, Jacob lies. Moses kills, David cheats. You know, even though they failed left and right, God was faithful all the way through over and over again. Yes, he punishes sin to be sure. Make no mistakes about it. He punishes sin. But he is gracious as well. Look, if he weren't gracious, we wouldn't even be here today. The very fact that we exist, that he has left some remnant of humanity demonstrates that he is gracious. We deserve sin and death and punishment and nothing beyond that. Yet God gives us a chance to live. As you follow these examples throughout the Old Testament, one of the neat things you see is, for example, in the golden calf incident, the Lord provides an intercessor. Yes, the people sin, but then Moses intercedes on their behalf and he prays and he implores the Lord. He says, turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster you're about to bring upon your people. Remember, remember Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, whom you swore to, not because they were good, but because you were good. It's on you, not on them to keep this covenant. Remember that, Lord, and because of that, relent and the Lord relented. And thus, the golden calf incident. God spared them. The Baal worship. You may or may not know this story, but if you're a warrior or you want to impress your teenage boys, read the story in Numbers 25 about this guy named Phinehas. Man, he is incredible. Driving people through with spears two at a time. All right? Amazing story. But it is his zeal for the righteous worship of the Lord that stops the plague. And as a result... The Lord says to Moses, Phinehas, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people. He was jealous with my jealousy among them, so I did not consume the people of Israel. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for his people. So in this incident, in the Baal, sexual worship of the idol and enemy, God provides an intercessor. Manna in the wilderness, there's complaints. Lord, you've, not, you've only given us bread. We should be back in Egypt. Come on. And all of a sudden, the serpents come and start biting the people for their complaints. And then the people came to Moses and said, whoa, wait a minute. We don't like this. We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said, make what? A fiery serpent and set it on the pole for everyone who's bitten. And he shall see it and live. So Moses made the bronze serpent and set it on the pole. And if anyone was bit, he would look at the serpent and live. In every case, throughout all their failures, despite the punishment, God has the opportunity to completely destroy them, and he chooses not to. He stops short, and he provides an intercessor and a sacrifice. Did you get that? An intercessor and a sacrifice. And guess what he does in the New Testament? He has every right to completely destroy us. But he stops short and provides an intercessor and a sacrifice. And his name is Jesus. Do you get it? It's exactly the same. But Jesus is no different than Yahweh, and he demands it all. You're going to follow this guy. You don't ring his bell, he rings yours. He says, Jump, you say, How high? In every area of your life. And the story continues. And you take the provision that he provides, you go down into the water, you come out, you receive the blood and the wine. But if you trample on that grace, be sure his wrath is coming. But if not, man, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because dad is coming home. God punishes sin, yes, but he also provides an intercessor and a sacrifice. Know therefore, Deuteronomy says in the Old Testament, we see this in the New as well, that the Lord your God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant in steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Man, take heart. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The message says it like this. Verse 13, here's the encouragement and the hope. No test or temptation that comes your way is beyond the course of what others have had to face. Look, they've been through it too. All you need to remember, all you need to know is that God will never let you down. Yeah, this is big. This is an enormous obstacle. There are Egyptians at your front and at your rear, and you're standing at the edge of the sea. You're wondering, how in the world are we going to get out of this? The Lord opens a path and makes the way. He provides the way. And you're either delivered from it or through it or by it. Doesn't mean you may not have to go Endure it. You know, that cancer may come and you could be healed next day. You could be healed through treatment or you may be healed through the resurrection. From through or by, I don't know which one it's going to be. We have no idea. But we know the Lord is faithful and he won't let you down. So regardless of which path he leads you on. Know that he will lead you faithfully through it. From through or by. Let us then, Hebrews says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not based on our faithfulness. If it were, pfft, we're done. But it's based on his. For Thessalonians says, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. It's not based on you, it's based on him. So relax. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Your God is coming back. Whatever seat you're in, whatever spot you're sitting at this morning, man, if you're abusing that grace, then take heed. But if you're resting in that grace, take heart. your dad's coming home. These things happen. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says. To them as an example. That's why these bad examples happen. They're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. The time has come, and here we are, standing, at the window. This morning, as I was reading the New York Times, uh, one of the stories that jumped out about me sounded, uh, jumped out to me sounded about like the story up. You've probably seen that movie. Well, there's actually a house, owned by this lady named Edith Macefield, in Seattle, Washington. And according to Disney, their movie was not based on this house. But man, you look at this house and it's like the exact same thing. There's huge, sprawling developments on either side of this 100-year-old home in the middle of downtown Seattle. And it's just crazy. There's a Ross dress for less on one side, and then there's like uh, Planet Fitness or Fitness something, whatever, on the other side. And there's all these lofts and condos, and then there's just this dump of a place right in the middle it turns out an elderly lady died there like uh, several years ago and uh, just would not sell the house, you know. It had been there forever and ever, and she had just anchored herself down. And so now, in memory of this movie Up, people are coming by, and there's like a concrete retention wall around it with all the stuff going over it. And the house has been condemned because no one's living there, and it's old and it's insecure, but it's still there. And people are coming by and hooking little balloons on the chain link fence that surround it, you know, to kind of commemorate this movie. And writing notes and things like that. And what's interesting to me is this. I'm not trying to make a statement about, you know, urban planning, development, environmentalism, commercialism, whatever. What I'm saying is, it's, for our purposes, it's interesting to watch how this person anchored themselves. They said, look, this, this is all coming in around me but I hold right here. And I say we as a New Testament church are the same way. We can watch the waves of our culture flooding in around us. Whether it's the idolatry of self-satisfaction and self-gratification, self-fulfillment, excess, greed, opulence whatever, or whether it is the, you know, sexuality of our hypersexualized marketing and media etc or whether it is the messages of our completely anti-biblical, anti-Christian worldview culture. And we need to anchor ourselves down and say, yeah, all that stuff can come up around us. But here we stand. Boom. Right here. And then we sit there in our silly little house, and you know what we do? We look out the window, and we wait for God to come home. We say, man, all that junk is going on around me, but I don't care. So here we stand. We believe in creation. We believe in life. We believe in marriage. We believe in the Bible. And we actually believe that Jesus is the only way. Do you believe that? We will anchor yourself. Take heed and take heart. We stand at the window and the end of time has come. And God is coming back. Father, you're so good. How did you do that? This incredible history and world that you made to work in such an amazing way. You're real and you let people go through stuff that we wish we'd never even known about. And yet here we are. We face our own junk and we're a mess and we don't always get it right either. We thank you. And you are gracious. It's not based on our faithfulness, but on yours. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, help us to take heed. Take heed, Lord, but also help us to take heart. We stand at the window and we wait. We praise you because you're coming home. Good morning, my name is Ted Knapp. I have the privilege serving on our elder board. I just experienced the God moment. As I was preparing to pray this week, I... um